everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast that explores the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. What I would say to a congregation that's dealing with white supremacy, I would say, do not think you will get through this with no cost. There will be cost. Now, there are ways that you can do this that the cost will be greater and lesser, but you have to decide, would you rather pay a lesser cost and do a less effective job at dealing with racism? I've got to say, I am at the point, I feel this as a white guy right now. I hope the Christian faith does not survive with its white supremacy intact. I would rather there be a devastating cost and coming through without white supremacy being baked into Christian theology then have the Christian community get through this and still be nurturing, protecting white supremacy. Today we're back with noted author and activist, Brian McLaren. In this episode, white supremacy, the costs of following Jesus and our faith, and why he asked the question, do I stay Christian in his latest book? Let's jump right in. It's interesting to step back, as you said, you know, Lord have mercy on all of us, Lord have mercy on all of us, and that you have not necessarily said that in your assessment of the systems in which we live, that you're not necessarily because of that anti-institution, at least I don't think you've described yourself that way, yeah. that at its best, a definition of a healthy institution is an organization that preserves the positive gains made by past movements. Yes. Not just de facto churning the wheel of the organization, the institution for preservation's sake, but to say, this was important. This is where we did right. This was us being faithful. Yes. And let's continue that. Yeah. Well, first, Sarah, it makes me happy that you noticed that because that is something I'd say over the last 10 years or so, I've really become more and more interested in the dance between institutions, movements, and the communities in which they occupy themselves and interact with each other. And I think when people see institutions dysfunctioning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's easy to see why they hate institutions and are bitter against institutions. And I even understand why they might just want to burn the whole thing down. And I imagine there are times and places where things have to be burnt down. It's easy for people to say, burn the system down, burn the institution down when they're victims of its failures. But then 10 minutes after it's burnt down, you find out how much it was also protecting you from. And so I want to live with a vigorous critique of institutions, but also a vigorous defense of their value. For example, medicine is an institution and there's so much wrong with the medical system. But if we burned it down, think about how much we would lose accounting, you know, there's crime happening left and right. And the tax system goes after little two-bit players and lets the Donald Trumps get away. And the Elon Musks never pay taxes, right? Yeah. So you think burn the system down, but then you realize, hold it, <laughs> we, we have to start over and we could end up way, way behind where we are now. So I think I want to live with that balance of seeing the value of institutions and seeing their potential harm when they don't continue to grow. And this to me is one of our huge challenges in every area of life right now, because the world is changing faster than our institutions are keeping up. So we're in a whole lot of tension with this right now. Do you have a 
imagination about it's impossible to really isolate an institution, but yeah. for imagination's sake, there is a let's say a neighborhood, a, a predominantly white church yeah. that is beginning to become conscious of the fabric of institutionalized racism in our country yeah. and its participation in that. I'm curious if there are particular ways of that you you might be drawn in if you were in conversation with that board yeah. to the Christian story, yeah. to the story of our faith yeah. that helps them see that is actually a part of the large river yes. of interpretation that people of faith have had to do understanding that God is active and the story's not finished yes, yet. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe I could give a, a different example and then come back yeah, to I love the that. example you gave. And what I'm about to tell you might not be true, but I was told it was true. I was told that the Episcopal Church, when they began the process of thinking about destigmatizing LGBT identity, and my dear friend Gene Robinson, when he was had become a bishop, and I understand that the Episcopal Church like hired somebody to say how many people would we lose if we go ahead with this. And as I was told, and I, again, I've never seen the paperwork on this, but that they were told they would lose about 9% of their congregations, 9% of their attendees, 9% of their income or something like that, something like 9%. And they decided we're willing to lose 9%. We're going to go ahead with it. What I like about that story is first, they actually counted the cost hmm. and they had to say, what are we going to do? I could imagine if they said we are going to lose 99% if we do this right now in this way, I could imagine them saying, we've got to take a step back. And as much as it pains us, it's going to take us 10 more years to get where we need to be. Because let's face it, they could have dealt with LGBT equality in the 1960s or 40s or 10s or 1850s, right? But they weren't ready. There weren't enough people who cared and the cost would have, I'm sure they wouldn't have said yes to it. So I like the idea of facing the cost. And then I really like the idea that said we're willing to pay that cost. I was with a former Nazarene pastor who went through this process and they ended up not being Nazarene anymore. Mm -hmm but they became LGBT inclusive and they lost a lot more than 9%. I forget what the percent was, but it was big in the short run. And then that changed. But he said to me, we have been bigger, but we've never been better. <laughs> and what he was saying is we paid a heavy cost. We are so glad we paid that cost. Mm. We don't regret it. So what I would say to a congregation that's dealing with white supremacy, yeah. I would say, do not think you will get through this with no cost. Mm. There will be cost. Now, there are ways that you can do this, that the cost will be greater and lesser, but you have to decide, would you rather pay a lesser cost and do a less effective job at dealing with racism? And I've got to say, I am at the point, I feel this as a white guy right now. I hope the Christian faith does not survive with its white supremacy intact. Mm -hmm. Like I would rather there be a devastating cost and coming through without white supremacy being baked into Christian theology mm. than have the Christian community get through this and still be nurturing, protecting white supremacy. That's what I would do. I'd yeah. wanna have that kind of a conversation. Mm. And I think this applies to so many different issues. And I think what will help us is we realize 
that the stigmatization of gay people, carelessness about the environment, white supremacy, patriarchy, being driven by unacknowledged capitalist impulses, all of these different things are really interrelated. And I think when we bring them to the table and then look at the whole Bible, and especially the New Testament, and especially the teaching of Jesus, I think we'll say, oh my gosh, there's so much there relating to this situation. Just a quick example. A couple of months ago, I, had to, I was asked to preach a sermon based on the book of Esther. And so I just went through and read through the whole book of Esther. And I just thought, I can't believe it. This book has a whole lot about sexually non-binary people. They play a really big role in this book. And this book has a whole lot to say about arrogant patriarchy and about the power of subversive women and all the rest. I just thought, I never would have noticed this. I bet people, I know people read this book for centuries without ever noticing any of those things because they were in a different situation and had been trained to look for different things. Yeah, there's a pageantry and a, and a drag to it, you know, <laughs> acting out that story. Right. You know, it, it, you know, when you think about whether or not Christian institutions possess the will to do what you're talking about, yeah. to weigh the costs and say, we'll take the greater costs, we'll make the greater sacrifice, we will lose this kind of influence and power in the world scheme because what God is calling us to is something different, and there's a cost to that. When you think about whether or not we possess that will, do you have anxiety about the future in the church? Well, I think we do not possess that will in sufficient strength in any sector of society right now. I live in Florida, so I'm living in a state where our governor is getting away with pathetic bullying. When I think of some of the most vulnerable, precious human beings in the world, I think of transgender children. And I think, why would anybody decide to gain political power by turning transgender children and their parents who are going through an awful lot? Why would anybody do this? But it's happening there. And this to me is part of the dynamic of democracy, I suppose, is that we'll get to see. And None of us can afford to sit back and just say, let's wait and see what happens. And that seems to me to apply to every dimension. You know, I felt this the other day, Sarah. I'm sure a lot of people noticed this when the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church spoke out with strong support for Vladimir Putin and interestingly made it clear that the reason Putin had him by the nose is that he opposes LGBT equality. And so this gave them reasons for an alliance. Just pathetic how you can use sex to get people to hate and justify genocide and all kinds of other things, right? But I thought to myself, history is happening in front of our eyes because Russian Orthodox priests are standing up to the leader of their communion. And other Orthodox communions are standing up to the Russian Orthodox communion in ways that have never happened in Christian history before. And so what will happen to the Russian Orthodox Church? Is it a lost cause? Nobody knows, but something dynamic is happening. And if everybody just sits back and says, I hope it'll work out, very bad outcomes will happen. But if enough of those priests have the courage to stand up and speak out, knowing at the great risk that it brings, there could be a different future. 
not without a lot of tumult between here and there. And I think that's the other thing we have to realize in times like these, that the idea of smooth incremental change to a better future, no, it's going to be dramatic and tumultuous, whether we're talking about saving the earth from climate change or saving transgender children from abuse by political leaders. Yes. And speaking of heroic, do you think it's heroic to say that you are Christian, knowing mm. what Christians know about people called Christians? <laughs> yes. I'm trying to think of who said this. Somebody said, for most of Christian history in the West, it was heroic to say that you're not a Christian. <laughs> uh, in other words, it took a lot of courage to say you're not. And some, you could imagine that situation flipping. I think to stand up for the truth is going to be heroic, whether you identify yourself as Christian or not. To stand up for an unpopular truth is the heroic thing. Now, because I really believe that Jesus was right and so wonderful that, of course, the religion named after him has fallen far short of his example. I mean, there's a sense to try to stand for with our founder is a heroic act. And that's what I hope people will do. What I hear in what you're saying, Brian, is also just a sense what, what you, I believe you have done in your life's work, among many things, is made the implicit explicit, mm. like having the courage to put names and faces and groups of people alongside what Christ is calling us to do in our present time and not say, yeah. use generalizations like, let's be simply more welcoming, but to say welcoming means this person, welcoming means this action. And it's in contrast to, <laughs> you know what, I love the, the phrase in Isaiah, I think this is the King James <laughs> Version, but it's Isaiah 30, that you say to the prophets, say to us smooth things, speak to us in smooth ways. Yes. And there's a very present temptation because honestly, I know from pastors, and, and I say this from someone who has not been serving in a pastoral role in a church for many years now, but rather a movement, that boy, your life is hell if you choose not to say the smooth things, you know? yeah, <laughs> if you say yeah. the true things. But it's all over yeah, in our yeah. text again and again in different ways and in different yes. historical situations, metaphorical situations with the imagination that God's people are offering for the future in these written texts is there's a contrast between the smooth things and the truth. <laughs> and it's not an easy choice, but um, sometimes... The truth is clear, and we don't possess the courage or the willingness to suffer or to... And I, I'm speaking as a white Christian yeah. who grew up in a white Christian church. Yeah. I think this is my task to possess the courage to wrestle with the hard things and live into them, and that that is what discipleship and teaching is about, rather than to say, let's say the smooth things that make us feel hopeful and confident that everything's going to turn out all right without yes. sacrifice or tremendous shifts. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think if that had worked, I probably would have been satisfied with it, but it just hasn't seemed to work in this particular juncture in history. Mm. And my gosh, there's just no way to make climate change a nice, easy pill to swallow. The energy that has produced this unprecedented prosperity for the last couple hundred years we didn't realize that it was a bank of solar energy that had been buried in the ground. 
and we found out how to capitalize on that easily accessible, easy to burn solar energy in the form of coal and oil. And when you build your whole society on a cheap source of energy, there is no way that that's going to be an easy pill to swallow. And of course, people are going to try to be in denial about it, just as they were about another cheap source of energy. That is the energy that got our country going before coal and oil, which was the energy of slave labor and oppressed workers. Even the ones who weren't enslaved were so often oppressed or temporarily enslaved. It's another whole part of our history we haven't told the truth about, about all that happened through indentured servants and so on. And so it's going to be painful. And so then you step back and you realize, oh, when Jesus was giving the Beatitudes, that's why he repeats that one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and who are persecuted for the sake of justice. And he then sharpens it, blessed are you, when all kinds of terrible things happen. Exactly the kind of things you're talking about, Sarah. And then he says, because that's how they treated the prophets. And this is one of the gifts of the wisdom of the biblical tradition. We need these people called prophets. We need these people who try to discern the next step that we're supposed to take and the next lie that we're supposed to expose. It's so sad to me. We, in the Christian faith, tried to promote Jesus to the very highest uh, you know, level we could, but we skipped over some of the other levels, one of them being that Jesus was a prophet. Our Muslim brothers and sisters, this is where they focus on Jesus as a prophet. We skip over that. But if we took Jesus more seriously as a prophet, it would help us appreciate all of his other dimensions as well, because it certainly is what he was. He fits in the tradition of the Hebrew prophet so powerfully. We want to promote him to Savior real quick so he can do something. And then we define Savior as something that affects the afterlife. So we very cleverly dispense with him as having to say anything about the real world uh, here and now. Mm, such a good word. Oh, such an opportunity for our time. You have a new book. It's really exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's... Um, I wrote a book that came out in 2021 called Faith After Doubt. And in that book, I talked about the large number of people. I, I use a four-stage model of faith development. You know, there's a lot of different models out there, but this is a pretty simple one that still has a good amount of nuance. And that uh, more and more people are moving from simplicity into complexity and from complexity into perplexity. And then perplexity is maybe the, the stage that is associated with words like deconstruction and doubt and so on. And then more and more people are moving from perplexity into what I would call harmony or solidarity. And what's happening is many of those people, when they move out of those first two stages of simplicity and complexity, they feel there's no place for them in the Christian faith. So a whole lot of people are asking this question, do I stay Christian? And that's the title of the book. And what I try to do in the book, Sarah, is instead of telling people, yes, you should stay Christian, I just say, look, some of us are going to stay Christian. Some of us aren't. Let's think through this question as wisely and carefully as we can. So the first part of the book is just called, no, do I stay Christian? No. And I try to give the 10 best reasons I can that I'm aware of for not staying Christian. And then the second part is called yes. And I talk about 10 ways that I think a person could stay Christian, even facing those first 10 chapters. But then the last third of the book 
really says maybe the question of whether or not we're Christian isn't the most important question. The deeper question is what kind of humans do we want to be, whether we're Christian or not. And so I call that part how, and I try to get at some of those, I think, critical how questions of how we're going to live. You continue to raise for me as a person of faith, for folks who are seeking, as you said, to you know, Mary Oliver's words, you know, what do you do with your one wild and precious yeah. life? Yes, what, you know, yes, what kind yes. of life do you, that these things do matter and they're not, they can be examined and we can make conscious choices to be people of beautiful courage. We don't just yeah. have to accept what certain periodicals say is the Christian way or the yeah. way to fit in within late stage capitalism, but that, yes, there's a consciousness to it. There's a, and I love the fact that you, you say in that book that you can choose to, or you can choose not to, but let it be a choice rather than just sort of a, a reaction. The water. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm just so very thankful once again to sit down with you today, Brian, and so thankful for the ways in which your action, your contemplation has shaped the journey of so many of us in this movement and beyond this thousand and one movement giving us those intentional conversation points, the questions that we would dare to ask so that we could live lives of integrity and intention in our faith as faith leaders. There's no one quite like you and your humility through it all and your love for other people is, is a great example to look up to about what it means to be a Christian. Well, it's, it's very kind of you to say that. I have to say that I feel a special affinity with the movement you you are a part of and, and this beautiful movement rooted in the Presbyterian tradition, reclaiming that tradition as a progressive and creative and forward-leaning tradition of semper reformanda, always reforming. And this sense that we don't need to divorce ourselves from an institution, but we can go to the green edge of that institution and we can have space for people to experiment and to learn and to not in any arrogant way say we're better than anybody else but just say we'll step out here and try to venture into some unknown territory and so thanks for the good work you do and for all the people who who are part of this uh, needed and beautiful movement whose best days uh, are still out ahead friends thanks for listening to new way Click subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll make sure to keep you up to date. You can check out Brian McLaren's newest book, Do I Stay Christian?, wherever good books are sold. And you can find us online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the ever-patient and understanding Marthame Sanders. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.